everybody and welcome to tonight's MHTV. Tonight's our second in a series of health and justice focused MHTV sessions. So um delighted to have um, a colleague with me tonight from health and justice, um, Dr. Verinda Panasar, who will introduce herself in a minute. But I'm just going to go over to Nikki first, who will tell you how to join in the conversation tonight. Now, we've got another fantastic topic and we'd love to hear from you. So if you're watching on Facebook Live, please just type away in the messages and we'll see that and we can feed those into the discussion. Um, and if you are watching in any other kind of way, please um, use the hashtag on Twitter, MHTV, and we'll see your message there and incorporate it. So thanks very much, Vanessa. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So tonight we're talking about neurodiversity, but specifically neurodiversity in prisons. And we're here with Verinda, who is doing lots of great work at HMP Pentonville. So I'm going to hand over to um, Verinda first to introduce ourselves and then we'll get on to the discussion. Verinda, do you want to just introduce yourself and say a few words about your background and what we're here tonight? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I am a forensic psychologist by training and I've worked in forensic mental health for the last 12 years since I qualified. Um, and I'm fairly new to prison. So I've specialized mostly in the community, working with children, young people, families who are at risk, um, and then in some inpatient settings. So prison is still a kind of about two and a half, three years into being in prisons. And I currently work across HMP Pentonville and HMP Wandsworth. So they're both remand prisons in London. Um, and my role there is to lead up on the therapies provision, particularly psychological therapies. Mm. I always find it interesting when people say they haven't worked in prisons long, because I, I do think that there is a lot of value in people joining prisons from community settings and bringing experience from outside of prisons as well, because I do think that that's what I did. And I think it does give you a, a sort of different perspective as well on prisons. So um, I know, so in terms of neurodiversity, I know you're doing lots of um, great work at the moment at HMP Pentonville, and I'm looking forward to visiting soon. Um, shall we just start for people who are listening, who maybe don't know much about neurodiversity, just um, why is neurodiversity in prisons important? Why is this an important focus at the moment? Okay, so I guess neurodiversity is important in general, because we're thinking about the brain that is wired a bit differently um, to a neurotypical brain. And um, people who are neurodiverse will have strengths in certain areas, but they'll also have certain challenges which their neurotypical peers won't have. I think you can argue that each of our brains is really unique, so we're all quite diverse. Um, but maybe for the sake of this discussion, we're thinking about neurodiversity as a real kind of lifelong disability that really affects how people might interact or communicate with each other and with the world. So I think in prison, it's really important because even for neurotypical people, prison is a really tough environment. Um, and the struggles that those with, you know, who are neurodiverse might have is, is gonna make prison even more challenging. And, you know, that includes things like how people communicate or their social interaction. So they might not be very good at seeking support 
or they might need longer to process information, or they might really not kind of understand social cues, which might get them into more trouble in prison. Um, yes. And prisons are really interesting because although they're quite rigid, I guess, in terms of, or they can be rigid in terms of routines and regimes, they can also be really chaotic and unpredictable and overwhelming. So for people who are neurodiverse, you know, routine and repetitive behaviors can be a really important way of kind of self-soothing. And when you can't control the environment, which is what prison's about, then that can become really overwhelming, really anxiety provoking. Then you might have like an emotional meltdown or a shutdown. Um, and I think it's even in, like it's really important in prisons because you've got this sensory overload that you're also dealing with. And that's for, for neurotypical people as well. You know, it's very loud, gates banging, keys shouting. Um, and for people who might have sensory overload, like they might have sensory needs. So being in a prison can be particularly kind of painful in terms of like an overwhelming feeling to their senses. So I think it's a really complex area. We haven't thought about it enough in the past in terms of prison or the criminal justice system. And we're sort of just expecting um, neurodiverse prisoners to find a way to cope in an environment that's really tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really striking. Do you think as well, Pentonville's a male prison, do you think there are any gendered issues around the sort of intersection of gender and neurodiversity in prisons as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're still learning quite a lot about um, neurodiversity in females or, you know, and, and I think the male estate in particular is um, is quite neglected, the male remand estate. So, you know, people come from a background where they might have had really traumatic lives, they might struggle with their mental health, they might have substance use uh, needs as well, and lots of other social, personal, mental health problems. And then if you've also got um, neurodevelopmental needs, then it, it's a real struggle in a male prison. I think uh, female prisons maybe get a bit more um, support or resource because the way we understand women who offend is a bit different. We, we think about them maybe a bit more compassionately. We understand they've had trauma and we think we need, we need to give more support. It doesn't quite translate to the male estate for some reason. Yeah, yeah, which kind of it reflects wider society, doesn't it? And and men's mental health and the way men struggle to um, be able to talk about their mental health or have opportunities to to engage in conversations about mental health in the same way as women, because it's it's doubly challenging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think prison is a place where I, well, I've learned in my experience so far. There's a lot of um, banter sarcasm humor that's used as a way to communicate and um, if you're an autistic individual trying to figure out that environment it can be really difficult because your brain is not wired to understand those things um, and it can create lots of problems um, interacting with other people yeah absolutely just do you see um it's a quite a mixed picture in terms of people who maybe come into prison and don't know that they're neurodiverse and that's identified while they're in prison and people who come in with an existing diagnosis and I guess the support needs of those two groups might be quite different as well. Yeah absolutely I think we are trying to get better at screening 
So when somebody comes into prison, they will have an initial, um, you know, a first day and a second day screen with um, healthcare assistants and nursing staff. And we, we really need to do more. And, and this is some of the stuff that's come out of recent publications that, you know, we need to do more to quickly identify people that haven't come in with that diagnosis because they're more likely to either fly under the radar and not seek support proactively and kind of suffer in silence, which in the prison, I suppose, in a place like Pentonville, if you're if you're not showing how distressed you are, you do you do tend to get neglected and you might be seen as someone who just sort of keeps to themselves and gets on with things, but actually you're struggling and you're not able to seek out support. Or you might then be on the kind of other end of the spectrum with a lot of like aggressive, violent or self-harming behavior, which will get a lot of attention, but maybe not the right kind, which means, you know, you, you end up in um, the segregation or the block um, and there's kind of more punishment. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's really important that we're, we're able to know if somebody's coming in with a diagnosis, but also screen everyone that's coming in. Um, yeah. So that we're able to pick up and support those who might need further assessment. And, you know, there's higher prevalence of um, neurodiversity in prison than there is in the general population. So it's really important yeah. that we're, we're picking up on it. So that's interesting. So if there's higher prevalence, that would suggest that probably people who are getting caught up in the criminal justice system might be because of un some undiagnosed neurodiversity issues. Potentially. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we've I think we're getting better. The criminal justice system is, um, you know, with liaison and diversion services, trying to you know see if we can even before somebody is really, you know, because by the time you come to prison, you've been through a whole process um, within the criminal justice system. So the liaison and diversion service is really good at being able to like, see if we can kind of divert people into more health services than punish them via the criminal route. But there's yeah. still a way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's good that there's such a focus on it, isn't there, at the moment? And it seems to be an increasing focus, doesn't it, really, across the system? I know um, I've been reading about, um, you know, prisons themselves that are starting to employ neurodiversity-trained prison officers. And just thinking about that when you were talking then, there's obviously a need for us to have, like, a more whole prisons approach to this, isn't there, in terms of... Um, the prison regime, prison officers, as well as healthcare. Um, so I suppose that leads us nicely on to talking about um, the developments at Pentonville. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Pentonville is, um, I mean, it's really exciting what's happening at Pentonville at the moment because there is no other remand jail that is um, is doing um yeah, it's putting in the kind of the resource into supporting neurodiverse prisoners. And it took a long time. This is what I've learned about prisons is, you you know, change is a very slow process. So to go from idea to action, you have to be really patient because it's not like community services where you might have more control. We are a healthcare service. We are in the prison's home. So yeah. we have to respect that and be patient. Um, and persistent. So at Pentonville, uh, about uh, it was the start of 2021, so not long after I joined, uh, we had a group that came together, and that was a governor at Pentonville and myself and a speech and language therapist 
at Pentonville. And it, this came out of a conversation that the governor had with a speech and language therapist about somebody that had just been released, who was really struggling to cope on the main residential landings. And there was just a sense of we could have done more for this person. So that led to a like a you know a, a board on almost being created and we met weekly for 18 months trying to plan the opening of a wing that would be dedicated to supporting people with these needs. So it would offer all the things that you know are recommended in those publications that have come out last year or in the last couple of years around an adapted environment, trained staff um, working together and you know, supporting the staff as well, because it's it's a really challenging job and it's everyone's responsibility to look after the men that we serve. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, this idea of moving away from silo working where we just refer to different teams and say, no, it's your responsibility, it's your responsibility, but, but actually we take a shared responsibility approach. So it took 18 months of planning and in August of last year, we were able to finally open the wing and it is about seven months in of running and it's going really well so they've got a dedicated staff group mm. a prison officer group who are just so passionate and invested and they care so much about um, the individuals they're looking after on that wing mm. and they really make a difference to these men's lives so we're hearing I mean I can read out this quote from a survey that we did so one of the residents of G1 has said on the main wing I felt like I lived in an inhumane kennel now I feel part of a family yeah. and really the 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 outcomes that you know we're seeing these early outcomes for um, the prisoners on there it's primarily a result of what the staff on there are doing so what the prison officers are doing not necessarily healthcare and, and you know there's yeah. a lot there's a lot that's going into it and it truly is a multidisciplinary team that's working to keep G1 running but most of the interactions that these individuals have on that landing are with the prison officers and that's what yeah. makes the biggest difference they feel listened to they feel safer they feel like somebody cares there's time for the officers to follow through on you know trying to meet the need of someone compared to the other landings yeah um, yeah so it's just, yeah, we're we're really excited about that and what's to come. Yeah. So the prison officers, have they been recruited specifically to work there? And also have they had training around neurodiversity? Or was it just more a, a general interest in neurodiversity that brought them into the prisons? Yeah, so both they had to express interest yeah. and then they were kind of um screened and uh, then they had initial training before G1 opened. So that was just to raise their awareness. And since it's opened, they've had kind of regular, almost like lunch and learn slots. It's really hard in the prison to shut down for a day of training. So you have to sort of be creative about how you do that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, they the, the prison officers are really enjoying being a prison officer, which they weren't doing in their roles on other landings. So they have a real yeah. sense of kind of purpose in coming into, into the work. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's really positive to hear. Yeah. Um, Nikki, uh, I'm just wondering at this point, do you want to come in with anything from social media? We've got some questions, if you're up for questions already. Sure. Go on then. Okay. So, uh, we've got a couple of issues. So um, 
I don't think this is your name, but this is the name that's on, on Facebook, Rodrigo Sabro TC. Hello, it's a great topic to discuss. Can you discuss some of the misconceptions around neurodiversity, mental health and learning disability and how this is addressed in prison? Um, Melanie Coxon's asked, um, is this a similar situation in young offenders institutions? Mm, good questions. Yeah. So the, yes, the first one was. Yeah, misperceptions. There are so many misperceptions, I think, and that comes from a lack of understanding uh, and a lack of awareness. So one of the things we found when we trained up the officers initially is they had been mistaking a lot of behavior, for example, for, for rudeness. Somebody can come across as being rude because they take things literally or they avoid eye contact because they find that overwhelming. Um, and so just in, in like very small day to day interactions, they, there was just a misunderstanding of why that person is doing it or they're doing it deliberately. Um, yeah. And what was the second part of that question? I think it was this. One was about misconceptions and the other was, is it the same in young offenders and students? Yeah. Some kind of work going on there too. I think the other misconception that we've um, noticed more is that often people, people might struggle in more than one area. So they, they will have neurodiverse needs, they will have mental health needs, they might have learning needs or a learning disability, and then substance use will come in there and they might have physical health problems. So I think when you introduce kind of trauma into the picture, it can be really hard to tease out what we're seeing is, you know, what is a result of kind of almost like a trauma survival response or yeah. what is part of the, neurodevelopmental need um, and so I think it means that people then don't get the support that they might need so because we might say oh this is this is this is to do with his autism but actually it yeah. might be to do with the, the trauma and we need and so I think we might then miss out on giving people the support they need to address things that they've been through in life mm -hmm. um, in the young people's prison so was the question about um, does the same support exist in terms mm -hmm. of resources mm -hmm. I know at Felton, because I used to work at um, uh, HMYOI Felton, there was a kind of a complex needs unit, which would um, support any of the young people that were coming into Felton that might have a complex mix of a variety of needs. And so that was an adapted environment. But I think the young offender institutions were moving towards this kind of trauma-informed way of working a lot sooner um, than you know the adult institutions have so I think in those environments you'll find that most of the landings that you're on are working in this way of trying to understand the person behind the behavior and trying to make adaptations and um, not just think they're acting that way because yeah they're being difficult yeah definitely one of the things that I find as well is that um, people think about neurodiversity in terms of mental health so in terms of my role being mental health if there's anything to do with neurodiversity, it's seen as being under my remit. And also um, people with neurodiversity being kind of put in the category of learning disability as well. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around, around that as well. Would you, you say that as well, Verinda? Is that your experience? Yes. Yeah. And I think I've probably experienced that more in the other prison I work in where we don't have the same setup. So it tends to be quite kind of silo and um, 
try and quickly identify what is the main need and who needs to deal with this. Um, whereas I think what we've been able to do at Pentonville is just really have that shared, you know, we all hold bits of information about this individual. Let's try and put it together and look at the whole picture and think about what they need and in what sequence. Yeah, I agree. And that's very similar to echoes kind of what I say that really it's about the person in front of you and looking at their needs and where their difficulties are. And then it's just like we would do with anyone developing a sort of person centered care plan that reflects what a person's needs are. But I do find and I don't know if this is your experience at Pentonville, but people get hung up around not having neurodiversity expertise um, not being able to work with people who've been screened as as having neurodiverse conditions but haven't been diagnosed rather than just thinking about the person who's been assessed and potentially may have some neurodiversity needs and, and sort of working with that individual. Yeah, I think um, there's two things there. There's the because the person-centered approach that you refer to is one of the recommendations from the NHS England publication about what more we need to do, but just recognizing how hard it is to do in a prison, um, you know, to have the time to do that, but also yeah. I think there's a lot of anxiety about getting it wrong. So yeah. some of the things that I've um, come to be aware of, for example, at Pentonville is in trying to introduce some of, some of these screening measures in reception, there can be high yeah. levels of anxiety amongst nursing staff. Um, yeah. That you know, that this is in our area of expertise. I and, and but I think when you try and understand it, it's a real fear of getting it wrong, and there being catastrophic consequences of getting it wrong. Yeah. So you say you're not going to go near it. Yeah. So have you found that that's changing? Have you found that nurses are feeling more confident in reception to screen people? For neurodiversity I mean I guess it's quite early days isn't it but just curious because I, I do agree I, that echoes um, some of the conversations I've had about people being quite nervous about using screening tools for neurodiversity. Yeah we, we're working on it it's a yeah it's a slow it, it will be a, a slow change and I think we are struggling with like having enough staff to do Oh, the kind yeah. of the, the bare minimum so I think when you then think about adding something else on like an extra screening measure and training that might be needed for that then there, there isn't you know currently enough time or resource but that's something to work on because um, you know these new models of care are coming in through NHS England and London prisons where there will be focus on someone's early days in custody so the first 14 or so days and really thinking about how we work together to understand that person and what they might need um, because that's the riskiest time for somebody in prison yeah absolutely and then if you bring in neurodiversity needs as well on top of other you know adjustments being in prison mental health as you say trauma um it, it is a real sort of mixture of risk factors isn't it for an individual yeah absolutely i've got some more questions if you're ready sure yeah for someone who prefers to remain anonymous, we appreciate that. <laughs> saying, um, that they're working as well in a similar situation, trying to get change in kind of complex system. And what are your what are your tip, top tips for just because you were saying about how it's really important to be patient? Have you got anything else that that's person might find helpful? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, so I guess yes, there's the patience and persistence and managing expectations, particularly this idea of like. We're, we are in someone else's home as a healthcare service. So just respecting that um, 
maybe respecting and accepting that things are going to change quite quickly or might take a long time to change. So there's that paradox. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think it's about finding a champion or finding somebody in the senior management of that prison or that setting who is able to share some of your goals or your vision. So you don't need all of the senior management to be on board. You just need one person um, who agrees with you and then that can start to lead to a shift. And I think always seeing it as a, as a kind of a multidisciplinary team responsibility. So the more people you get in the room, um, the less stuck it will feel. So when you feel like you're the one that's trying to kind of move things forward on your own, it's gonna be really hard in a setting like that. So how, you know, getting more voices in the room, people who might be interested in creating a change. And, you know, you, you, you can start with a small group. I mean, we started with, this started out of a conversation between two people, the governor and the speech and language therapist. I joined that and there was, you know, three or four of us for a while. And now we're, a, you know, a rich mix. We've got education part of that um, multidisciplinary team. And, you know, chaplaincy was really key, key from the start. So maybe another bit of advice is, you know, include people who you don't think naturally or you, you might not kind of be the first to consider as, but, but really for G1 at Pentonville, it was um, the managing chaplain who's worked there for a long time. And she was just so passionate about this that she helped drive the agenda forward and, you know, really think creatively with us about what we could do and how. Um, and I think you just have to keep the momentum going. So even when it feels difficult and it feels stuck, we, you know, we had three opening dates and the second one had to change because some piping issues needed, you know, some piping issues came to light, you know, pipes are 70 years old and they needed to be changed and that delayed it by another five months or so. So we just, at that point, it could have been easy to just say, okay, we're not, you know, this is, I'd, we don't think this is going to happen or it's taking too long and you sort of give up but we continue to meet weekly and still think about what we need and how we're going to achieve it um, I think those are the main bits that kind of come to me just being realistic as well about what's possible another person has asked um how did you get involved in this type of work it sounds really interesting mm -hmm. what led you to this particular field so is that forensic psychology or prison or probably both? I think they're talking about neurodivergency in prisons. Ah, okay. Um, probably through close working with speech and language therapists. Mm. So that was my first experience at Feltham working closely. With, you know, it was a very rich mm. uh, multidisciplinary team, but I think the role of the speech and language therapist was really... Mm and kind of creating a pathway and, mm. and getting people to think about how we screen, how we assess and um, being involved in training officers. So that was my first experience. And then it's been, it's been the same here at Pentonville. It's working closely with the speech and language therapist. I think their role is so key. Mm. I think from my point of view, I'm actually interested in what you, what you were just saying as well. So why, um, why did you end up in prison? So what was that? led you in that direction because people don't always think about psychology in prisons yeah um I think it was I, I probably had my own misconceptions about prison and I think I unhelpfully used to believe that by the time someone's got to prison there's not a lot you can do to change things because that's the worst possible outcome so I was more interested in the community work um 
and trying to intervene at a point where maybe people could stay, you know, in their local areas. I came into prisons, I think, a little bit by chance. It was a life move. Um, so I moved to a different area and a job came up in Feltham um, in the prison. So that was my first experience in a young offenders prison. And I thought that I, I knew prisons and then I decided to go for a job at Pentonville um, because mm -hmm. I was curious about being able to try and replicate things that we were doing at Feltham in a bigger jail. And I think it wasn't until I came to Pentonville that I realized, that, okay, this is prison. This is a real prison because it's so different to how the young offenders are set up. So it was by chance initially, but I think I've been able to challenge a lot of the misconceptions I had about prison and just the need there and what can be done. Mm -hmm. I do not, loads more have just come in actually while I've been talking. So um, one question is, some people say that prison should be a horrible environment because it's a punishment. How easy is it to combat this not kind of negative um, narrative? And has this been something you've had to get past to develop your own work? Yeah, that narrative is such a, it's so powerful. And, you know, prisons are, being in prison is punishment enough. And so within that environment, if we're trying to support individuals to return to a society and a community where they can live, hopefully, and cohesively with you know other members of society, we have to treat them like human beings. We have to understand what their needs are and support them. I think that narrative, I guess I fear it's gonna take a long time to shift that narrative. I think we get it when we work in prisons and those, um, you know, whether we're operational staff or clinical staff, we are in that environment. So we understand what needs to be done. I don't think it's kind of, it doesn't, it hasn't translated or generalized as much to society. And I think that, yeah, the media's reports of prison and prisoners and what we should do to punish people more kind of feeds that narrative. Mm -hmm. I guess we've been lucky in that we've had really strong, you know, we've had alignment from key people who can create change in prisons. Um, but yes, they will be senior staff and management and got on, on the governor level who are who just believe that you know this is just it's too late for this kind of stuff or they don't deserve it um and that it's just about somebody making a different decision and and you know it, it's a very simplistic or a narrow view I think we're always going to come across those individuals who work in these settings and you've got to try and see how you bring people alongside because you can't drag them along um, with your point of view. Mm. You have to kind of understand where they're coming from, what's driving their anxiety about change, and then think about who else you can bring into the room that might be able to challenge that view. I think really interestingly, um, at Felton, when I worked there, we had for a long time, we were having these repetitive meetings with some of the governors who were not aligned at that time with the need to kind of train up officers and work in a more trauma-informed way. And it just took one governor who said, right, I'm tired of having these conversations of, of talking about doing things, let's just do it. And then the others shifted in their views. So they, you know, you just need that one voice. So I think you always, you always have, it will always be an uphill climb um, when we think about prisons because it, it feels okay to say punish more. Mm. I think we maybe we try and be a bit compassionate to where that view is coming from and how we might be able to go alongside it 
but also find a common ground. Yeah. And also pragmatically, prison is expensive. Yeah. It needs to be work, it needs to work <laughs> so that people don't do it again. Otherwise yeah. it's money wasted. Yeah, absolutely. Like warehousing instead of rehab, isn't it? Yeah. And sometimes the language we use is different, you know, but we're talking about the same thing. So you might have a governor that that wants, you know, less violence and we, you know, and yeah, we do want less violence, but we're maybe from healthcare, we're talking about we want safer relationships. We want to improve relationships between officers and prisoners. And so that will lead to less violence. So we're talking about the same goal in the end. We're just describing it in different ways. So I think sometimes it's looking for how the you know the language might just be masking actually a mutual goal hmm. um i've got a couple more and then i'll, then I'll stop <laughs> so one is um was specific funding secured for this work just wondering about the arrangements and investment needed because of resource limitations which i think yeah. a thousand people hearing this will be like yes yeah <laughs> where do you get the money from <laughs> yeah i mean gosh that's a that's been a challenge because we've had no extra money to open this wing it's had to come from existing resources. So we've, we've, we've had to be creative about um, how we do this. We've always been clear that this is a prison wing. The governance lies with the prison. It's not a healthcare wing, but it will benefit from heavy healthcare input. And, and you know, um, there's weekly multidisciplinary meetings that happen on there and reflective practice for the officers that work on there. Um, there's a sensory room that's about to be installed. So we were able to get funding for that sensory room through our NHS. Um, but aside from that, everything has come from our existing resource. That was really difficult because it's already, you know, under-resourced. Um, and so we're thinking about adding something new, but without no more resource. And I think that's led to some frustrations for the prison staff. Um, you know, this kind of expectation that healthcare would do more and would be more visible and would have much more input. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we're trying to work on is helping them see the value of their roles, that actually they're the ones making a difference. They have all those hours more a week with um, the men residing on that landing. We might see someone for an hour a week, but really it's their influence through their interactions that is the most powerful. So I think that's still something we're working on. Um, but we came to this following a recognition that if we wait to get more resource to do something different, actually we'll be waiting a long time. No one's coming to save us. So we've got to save ourselves in some ways and think about how we can work together and be creative. Yeah, yeah the last one I've got is, uh, can you speak about the difference between neurodiversity versus neurodivergence? So not all people will attract a neurodiversity diagnosis or have neurodivergent needs. What can be done to ensure we don't pathologize people who are not neurotypical? Mm. So for anyone that maybe doesn't meet the criteria for a special wing. Yeah, that's really important. Mm. I think it's really important, but it's, it's also really hard to do in a prison environment. You know, how do you treat each person as a unique individual, understanding their unique strengths and needs and put in place what they need at the right time? So just that process requires somebody to have the time and thinking space and the resource. And it's just not there yet in prison. So I think sometimes, unfortunately, there are shortcuts that have to be taken, which mean people, yeah, get pathologized or fly under the radar. Yeah. Um, or we end up doubling up on interventions when actually that's not what was needed. Um, 
I don't have the answer to kind of how we do that because it's such a systemic issue, but I think it's it's important. And maybe the, the better we get at screening when someone arrives, the, the, the easier it will be to see what exactly they need. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, I was thinking just just that really that um, if you've got um, a prison which has got a high profile neurodiversity wing, you would hope that the ripple effects of that would permeate across the whole prison, wouldn't you, with the other officers and with healthcare? And as you say, that it's about the whole prison being skilled up from assessment onwards, you know. And work, as we said earlier, it's about working with an individual, isn't it, in a person centred way. Yeah and understanding their challenges and, and how you work with that person, I would think. But it's, uh, yeah. yeah, and just because somebody doesn't reside on that wing doesn't mean they shouldn't benefit from added support through outreach or other means. Yeah, um, exactly. I think that's something we need to work on at Pentonville. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask you about was um, you've mentioned about speech and language therapists, and I think quite interesting just to focus on that for a minute because I think people have got a perception uh, of speech and language therapists from sort of what they did in the past and um and obviously in terms of neurodiversity they're quite a critical group of um of staff now aren't they so do you want to say um maybe just a little bit about how they're working within neurodiversity in pentonville um yes so speech and language therapy really is um it's really important in prisons because I think if you look at the research, about 60% of those coming into prison will have speech language or communication needs. Yeah. And compared to the general population, which is more around kind of the four or 5%, you know, this is significant part yeah. of the population is going to need some support in how they communicate and navigate their environment. Um, so sorry, Vanessa, I, I forgot the second part of your question. Uh, no, no, I guess I was just, you know, I, I keep hearing about, um, you know, speech and language therapists and how um, they're starting to be used in much more innovative ways. And I, I think a lot of people, I'm not saying people are dismissive, but I think a lot of people don't understand the value that speech and language therapists yeah. can add. Yeah. And I know that you're working with them um, you know, in Pentonville. So I was just thinking for people listening, just yeah. to kind of awareness really of the role and what they can contribute to the multidisciplinary team yeah absolutely so uh, you know really helping with assessing and formulating someone's needs that speech and language therapy a therapist at Pentaville does so much of that systemic work in upskilling the officers so really understanding what each individual needs in terms of communicating effectively and making sure that's written down and people have communication passports and those are widely shared amongst all the staff. Um, really advocating for the needs of um, these individuals, whether it's um, in kind of liaising with community teams or, uh, you know, reading and rewriting uh, parole uh, conditions or probation conditions. So when people are approaching release, often they get you know, license conditions, which can be really lengthy and complicated and hard to understand. Somebody breaches a license condition, they're back in prison. And of course, if it's not given to them in a way that's accessible for their needs, how can we expect somebody to follow their conditions? So I think um, the speech and th therapist role is really key in just helping somebody, not just in prison, but also transition into the community and get the support they need. 
Um, I think there's also a strong link with kind of physical health because I think where you've got, um, for instance, if you've got an autistic prisoner who's also got learning disabilities and mental health issues, there are likely to be significant physical health needs that go undetected and you know or, or not not addressed effectively and um i think what we're trying to what the speech and language therapist is really good at just looking at the whole picture and thinking about every you know that individual's needs from a kind of a zoomed out perspective advocating yeah. for them referring and just um upskilling the workforce as well but that's only part of their role because they also do a lot of one-to-one -one therapeutic work, whether it's helping somebody learn social skills or communication yeah. skills, or think about those with developmental um, uh, language disorder. Um, and, and, you know, thinking on a one-to-one -one or group setting of what skills somebody needs to learn and how they can get them through therapy. Mm, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I mean, I think they are an under, they are a underutilized resource, so aren't they? I think throughout our health and care system. So it's really interesting to hear about the profile of them within prisons now and how how they're how they're adding that holistic benefit as well and working with teams. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean we're coming towards the end now, but I also wanted to ask you a little bit about um working in a trauma informed um context because I know we've touched on it um, in both in terms of, you know, working with people in prison, but also the staff group. And I know when we had our panel last week discussion, it was also mentioned there. So I guess from your perspective, um, how does this um, work interface with trauma and what kind of um, developments are happening around um, making the prison more trauma informed? Yeah, we're trying to take the learning like that ripple effect that you'd kind of described earlier of if staff come and work on G1, they might pick up on some practices and ways of doing things. But we're also thinking about how we might mirror what's happening on G1 um, on other landings where you've got 200 prisoners instead of 45 and you've got much fewer staff. So people are already overstretched and stressed. Um, so that that will be kind of the longer game and that's how I see trauma-informed care in prisons is it's it's a really long vision it, you know this is a cultural shift it's a different way of thinking and working and we we won't change it quickly I think we've been able to start on G1 and now it's about how we kind of widen out slowly. Yeah that's great thank you. Um, Nikki just aware we're coming to the end any more questions? Yeah. yeah I was just looking at the instructions I'm getting from from Dave so one is to say um just finishing up the last questions. Um, love this discussion and, and the focus on supporting and empowering prison officers. Best way to change prison culture and increase skill capacity. Prison officers often have an insightful knowledge about prisoners, but lack the tools to fully explain and make sense on how to respond best to their needs. This work is really uh, impressive and I'll be reaching out for more information. That's from Tanya. Um, yeah. And then um, speech and language therapy um, has been pointed out as well that um, health literacy in prison then people have an average age of nine to 10 years. So it's massively important to support people's communication. Um, yeah. And just to just remind people um, that next week we've got um, Paul Smith, Claire Henderson and Elaine Armstrong talking about advanced practice. So that's all I wanted to say. But thank you very much. I feel like I've learned loads, Verinda. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me.
Yeah. Um, Brenda, I guess over to you if you've got any um, take-home messages that you want to put across or anything we've missed tonight that we have that you think is important to cover before we finish up. Um, probably two things. One is if you'd like to come and visit G1 and see how it's functioning, just send an email. We're having visitor days throughout the year, so we'd love to host you. And the other thing is probably just a bit of a recruitment plug in terms of working in prisons. If you're a, a mental health nurse or a psychologist or a speech, you know, from whatever discipline, or if you're interested in coming into work in prisons and want to learn a bit more, you know, we'd love to have those conversations. So get in touch. Definitely. Thank you. And I'll just end by saying that Verinda is speaking at our Health and Justice event next week. So next Monday, we've got um, a national health and justice event, which is on intersectionality. So we'll be talking about neurodiversity. We'll be talking about um, gender in health and justice. We'll be talking about cultural diversity and various other topics. So there'll be a full day conference, which you can follow on MH Injustice on the hashtag. And we're hoping we'll have some more MHTV interviews as well um, after after the event as well. So yeah, just a plug for that as well before we finish. But thank you. It's been really interesting having you on tonight. And um, yeah, look forward to coming and visiting Pentonville as well myself. Yeah, so yeah, thank Thanks. you. Good night. Bye. See you all next night. Bye.